morning church it is good to be here i am glad to be back i did not like missing last sunday but sometimes things matters of health not a lot you can do so uh y'all are much more pleasant group of people to look at than the folks sitting in the minute clinic i will say that for sure much rather see y'all than than them so we are in ezra chapters five and six today gonna be a lot of scripture um I'm the one that does that to you. Y'all, I don't know, I'm surprised you haven't gotten rid of me for that. Man, is he really going to read two chapters at once? Yep, we're going to read two chapters at once. But it's all because it's really kind of one story as we're doing that. That it, it will make sense as we go through it all together here in a second. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ezra chapter 5. We're going to read all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, <clears throat> and, they did not stop, and that they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent to him a report, in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that when we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it was being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in, its, in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their elders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God shall, should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels on, and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. From that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king 
for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Chapter 6. Then Darius made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives when the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, a citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which was written a record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of the God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of, on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I decree regarding you, I decree regarding what the Jews, well, I'm sorry, my bifocals are a little off here. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished their building by decree of the, of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered it the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. And on the 14th day of the first month, the, exile, the returned exiles kept the Passover. 
For the priests and Levites had purified themselves together, and they were and all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover land for all the returned exiles, and for their fellow priests, and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given to us to to be in your word this morning, to hear your word, to proclaim it, to learn from it, and then to act on it. Father, we pray that as we we go through this time of worship through the hearing of your word, you would continue to speak to our hearts, that you would draw us close to you, that you would challenge us, you would convict us. Father, moreover, that you would would drive us to glorify you. That you would remind us that this this is a story of you and your love for us as we seek to to learn more of you through your word. Father, let us glorify you in this time. Let us honor you uh, in this moment as we we hear your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So as we think back about what we've talked about with Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah in in the old Jewish canon is one book. It's, It's kind of one scroll. And there's kind of one story about the rebuilding of the altar, the temple, the city, all of that of Jerusalem after the exile. And it's kind of told in three acts. And the first act of this story ends in chapters 5 and 6 of Ezra. This is all about Zerubbabel and what he had done. So chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Ezra kind of conclude that first third of the Ezra-Nehemiah story. Um, and, and so those ancient Jewish readers would have known this as, as one book rather than two because it's all this one story told out. And in Ezra chapters 1 and 2, we see the story of this new exodus, right, where, where Cyrus writes the decree and sends the people out, and, and anyone who wants to go can go. And then in chapter 2, the, the, the people are all numbered, and we see that there's, those are returned. Chapter 3 tells us about the altar being rebuilt and the people celebrating the festival of booths. Chapter 4 then tells us about opposition that came to the people as they were rebuilding the walls and temple, right? Because there's a little bit of a, a fast forward in chapter 4 a little bit. Chapters 5 and 6 shows us the success of that first generation of returnees in spite of all the opposition they faced. <clears throat> and what's neat about this is we look at this and we read these Old Testament stories, sometimes you kind of get lost in the weeds a little bit. There's a lot of historicity in it. There's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of other things. But, but as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, What we need to understand is that we will face opposition. And how we respond to opposition is going to matter, right? How we respond when the things that we stand up for are challenged is going to to be a big deal. How you respond when you're mocked for your Christian morality. How do you respond when when the things that you hold dear, things like the gospel, things like the truth of Scripture, things like your faith in Christ are scorned. That's going to matter. And it's going to matter not just to us as individuals or us as Christians. It's going to matter out to God because it's all about His glory and making sure that we're glorifying and honoring Him. It's also going to matter to the world as they're watching us. When we, when when we are scorned and we are mocked, 
How do they respond to that? Do they act like the world or do they act like the Jesus they claim to follow? And I get it because right now it, it often feels like we're on this really precarious precipice. We're at this peak in our culture, right? As if we're on this, this verge of a, of a cultural tipping point right now. And, and it feels like it could go in any direction. <clears throat> but as Christians, the thing that we have that's different and it's unique is, is we have the truth. We can speak to the condition of the world as it really is. We have the hope of salvation that comes from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we, we should be sharing that out in love frequently and often, and we, we need to be telling that, but yet even when we do that, when we're showing that love, we're still going to be opposed and treated with scorn and shame. That's, that's part of what we see here in the Old Testament. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do when it appears like no one wants us to be faithful to God? This is what that first generation of returnees from the exile to Jerusalem faced in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. What do we do? Right In, in this, we can kind of see how to deal with opposition to our faith in our life. Right, The returnees to Jerusalem are, are twice said in this passage of Scripture to be prosperous or to be successful. We see it in chapter 5, verse 8. We see it in chapter 6, verse 14. What did they do in the face of opposition that gave them that success, that allowed them to prosper? Well, what we see right away is that in the face of opposition, the elders in Jerusalem were obedient to the word of God. Right? It opens right up. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem and, and Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. Right? These prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, in their writings are encouraging the returnees to rebuild the temple. But that's coming to them from the Holy Spirit, right? Ezra says they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. See, these, these men were not just writing it down, but they were active prophets during this time, this post-exile kind of time. And, and they were active in their prophecy as they were rebuilding the temple. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to spur on the rebuilding of the temple. Which is beautiful because what that tells us is that, is that God is giving the ultimate authority for the rebuilding of the temple. That here these men are faithful to the word of God and, and God is, is telling them what to do through his word. And this is significant because it means that Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the elder elders of, of Jerusalem heard the prophetic word of God... And they obeyed. They heard the prophetic word of God and they obeyed. And, and not only is this significant, it's kind of unusual. Normally when we read about the prophets, right? Most of the time we read about the, the prophets of God of the Old Testament. Prophets will make a proclamation. And then, well, then comes the condemnation of the people of Israel and the leaders of the people of Israel for being lazy and being apathetic to God's word. But here, we don't see that. Here it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The leaders of Israel here were being obedient to the word of God. See, when the people of God repent and they obey, the word of God is with them and it supports them. Do you, do you hear that? When the people of God repent and obey, the word of God is with them and it supports them. 
when they reject and disregard the Word of God, the Word of God condemns them. And that's important for us to see. Because the same holds true for us today. When we hear the Word of God and we repent and we we obey, we are supported by the Word of God. When we disregard the Word and we reject it or we find ourselves somewhere else, that's when we also will find ourselves under its holy and justified condemnation. And know that. When we, as, as those who claim Christ, when we ignore the Word of God, it is a holy and justified condemnation that we would receive. Now get this, it, it takes some courage here to stick to biblical conviction. Right? It takes courage to be obedient to God. But there is a call to stick to it. Right? So we get, we get Tatani and Shethar Bozani, and, and they're coming with their little bureaucratic authority. Right? They got their little briefcases, they got their little building code slips, they got whatever it is they got, right? Their little yellow hard hats with a little sticker on it. And they're coming in, who gave you permission to do this? Do you have your permits? Can I see that? They're, they're, they're asking all these questions, right? They begin to ask these questions about the rebuilding of the temple. And they're, they're intended to intimidate Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua knew that they had the backing of God through his word. And that's really important for us. right? It is, it is super easy to get bogged down in daily life and forget that what we're doing now is significant and important for the Lord. It doesn't always feel that way. But our feelings often lie to us. Our obedience now to the Word of God is just as important as the obedience of the Old Testament prophets was then. Our obedience to the Word of God now is just as important as the obedience of the New Testament apostles was then. See, what we do now is just as much for the sake of God's glory as everything that we're seeing happening in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. What we do matters. And what we do now matters so much because it matters to those who will hear the gospel because of our witness. It matters because... It could mean to them accepting the truth of the gospel and having eternal life in God's favorable presence or rejecting the truth of the gospel and being condemned to eternal life away from God's favorable presence. It matters. But we continue reading in the scripture in verse 5 it says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer should be returned by letter concerning it. This is great. They just kept going, right? This is how God acts on behalf of those who are obedient to his word. They continued on. They were faithful to the word. And during these times of opposition, God accomplishes his purpose through his obedient children. And we're seeing that. God causes those who are obedient to his word to prosper for his sake and for his glory. Now notice that I'm saying it this way on purpose. God causes those who are obedient to his word to prosper for his sake and for his glory. 
That prospering is not for my sake and that prospering is not for my glory. Get that. That's important. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about God's sake and God's glory. But knowing that God's sake and God's glory is so much greater than anything we could ever offer anyway, this should encourage us to be obedient in difficult times of opposition in our lives. To see that that God is still going to continue to prosper for himself. And to see that, that glory happen. That's an encouragement to us to be faithful and obedient during times of opposition. Then we get into the actual letter. Now the letter here in chapter 5 is is from a little bit earlier time than chapter 4. The Holy Spirit of God is allowing Ezra, as he's kind of chronicling the events of the return from the exile, to have some literary freedom. Right? Ezra is able to write things a little out of order to show that opposition to the work of God is the same in each generation. Chapter 4, he's kind of writing about his generation, the second batch of returnees out of the exile. In chapter 5, he's writing about Zerubbabel's generation, the first batch of returnees out of the exile. And what he's showing us, though, is that, that, in this, that during Ezra's time, And during Zerubbabel's time, they faced opposition. And that that's okay, that God does that. He's showing this so that we can see that the opposition is the same to God's work in each generation. Yet, even though that opposition is the same, God still gives the victory over the opposition through obedience to his word. It was God and God alone who caused the effort to rebuild the temple to be a success. It wasn't the people rebuilding the temple. They were tools in the hand of an almighty God. They were hammers and levels and mortar troughs and trowels. That's what they were for God. They were a means for God's work to be displayed. See, in our time, though, this is a little different because in our time, we don't have a central temple, right? In our time, the temple of the Holy Spirit is the church. Now, it's those who walk with Christ that are the temple of the God, right? God is, God is, God is not building a brick-and-mortar structure church here. Right? God is going to cause the building of the church to succeed. And, and, and it's not, again, it's not brick and mortar and drywall and studs. It's about adding souls to the registry that is the book of life. Right? God wants to build his church through his obedient people. You and I, his obedient people. And, and for us to understand something, and, and I think we see this with Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua. As they're looking at this, they're seeing they're part of something bigger, right? But as followers of Christ, you and I are part of something much bigger than ourselves, and it's much bigger than this local body. We are part of a movement that is going to always look small, that's always going to look insignificant, it's always going to have toils, it's always going to have struggles, but the beautiful thing about this movement of God is that it is going to be triumphant and victorious in the end. This is God's church, this is how it works, and he 
prevails. Period. He prevails. And these opponents that we see here specifically in chapters 5 and 6, Tatanai and Shethar Bozanai, they don't see God as being a prevailing God. They don't understand his style of justice. They don't understand his plans. In their letters, the the leaders of Persia may call God a, a great God, or sometimes they may even refer to him as God of heaven. But these are are phrases to them that are really about being diplomatic. We're going to try to sound nice, play nice. And it's really kind of even a a hollow diplomacy in that. Like when when an elected leader refers to somebody else as your excellency. But they're an enemy of the state. (laughs) Kind of hollow diplomacy. They do not acknowledge God as the one true creator of the universe. I like Chris this morning in small group mentioned that he was, Yahweh God was was one of a myriad and a cavalcade of gods that the Persians and the Babylonians were trying to placate. Not the God, creator of all. See, they, they, they see him this way. They don't, they don't acknowledge him that way. He's just one of many gods of many different peoples they have conquered. See, they see a God who is weak and who could not keep his temple from being destroyed and who could not keep his people from being carried off into captivity. But see, the returnees, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, they see him rightly. They know him to be the God of heaven and earth, and the returnees are his servants. And they know he has chosen them because, because they seem small and insignificant to be his servants so that his glory may abound. God takes the tiny little things that look insignificant, does something fantastic and go, it had to be a miracle. It could only be of God. And they see that about themselves. They know the destruction of the temple and the exile to a foreign land are because God is true to his word And he rightly judged his people for breaking the covenant. And they so much as even tell Tatanai and Shethar Bozani that. They're not afraid to say, we know that our forefathers goofed up and that's why we wound up in Babylon for 70 years. They tell them that. The exile was all about God being true and just. Not about Assyrian or Babylonian gods having triumph over Yahweh. That is not what happened. He was true and just. And those false gods are still false gods. And we see the similarities today. Right? There's tons of false gods in our culture. False gods that offer financial stability or, or wealth. False gods that offer physical pleasure and emotional relief. False gods that offer intellectual and ideological satisfaction. And when we sin, we declare that these false gods of sex, money, influence, we we declare that they offer up something better than Yahweh, the one true God. And when temptation comes across our path, and it's going to come across our path, when it comes across our path, we must seek God, the one true God out. We need to ask him to satisfy us with himself. 
to find our, our truth there. So here, Tat and I and, and Shethar Boz and I are, are looking to justify and to verify that the Jews had the right to work on the temple. Right? The world today is looking at God's people to be able to verify our claims as well. And we must be people of truth. Zerubbabel and Yeshua told their opponents the truth. They didn't hide anything. They proclaimed it as it was. And God honored that. And this should encourage us to be obedient to telling the truth, even when it looks like a lie would keep us from harm. Man, every eight-year-old person in the room is clicking, you know, I've lived that one, right? How often did you get whooped harder for the lie you told rather than if you had fessed up and told the truth? Scripture backs it up. Scripture backs it up. We should be encouraged to be obedient to telling the truth even when it looks like a lie would keep us from harm. Let me jump into chapter 6, right? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we see that Darius received Tatanai and Shethar Bozani's letter, and he went on a record search to see about the decree of Cyrus. And sure enough, they found the decree. And it was almost the exact same decree that they see in Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. But there's a significant, to the Jews' benefit, difference. Verse 6, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 4. I love this. There's a clause that we don't see in Ezra chapter 1. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. I love this. So, so Tatnai and Shethar Bozani had wanted to stop the building of the temple. And now. <clears throat> Now they have to figure out in their, own, in their own governmental budgets how to find room to fund its completion. I love how God works this way. I love this is how God works. He takes the opposition and he makes it for the benefit of those who are obedient to him, right? These guys wanted to stop the work of the building of the temple and now they have to fund the building of the temple, according to the decree of Cyrus. See, there's no setbacks, there's no failures, there's no tragedies, there's no disappointments. There's no defeats in our lives that God cannot use to bless those who are truly His. We can feel like it, we can feel beat up every day, but God is going to use that eventually for those who are truly His, seeking Him and being obedient, to bless and as we look at Cyrus's decree a bit more, we see in verse 5 that the items of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen were to be returned and used again. And I love this because when God stirred Cyrus's heart in chapter 1, it was so that proper function and right worship in the temple could be restored. It, it wasn't just for Cyrus to have a nice temple over there that we're going to allow the Jews to worship. No, God was using all of this in his sovereignty to, to change things. Darius then tells Tatanai and Shethar Bozani to leave the Jews alone and allow them to conduct business the way they see fit. Darius also demands that the Jews be paid as quickly as possible and paid from the royal budget and make sure they have enough of everything they need for their daily sacrifices as well. Just going to heep it on, man. This is, this is indignity upon indignity 
to Tat and I and Shethar Boz and I. Right? <clears throat> and, and, and he does this. It's kind of funny, but it's diplomatic and it's also kind of self-serving to Darius as well. Right? If all the locals in this province beyond the river, which is a huge area, it's, it's basically everything west of the Euphrates River to the, um, to the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to include Saudi Arabia, what we think of as, as Syria, possible parts of modern Turkey. It's this whole big area, what we would know as the modern Middle East. And Darius in his mind is thinking, if, if, if the locals have some sense of freedom and worship, then maybe there will be a little less strife in my big, vast empire, right? Verse 10 also lets us know that, that Darius wants the locals to be praying for him and for his family to continue to reign in the empire. So that when they go to offer sacrifices in the temple to Yahweh God, maybe, just maybe, they'll pray for me and my boys too. Just a little self-serving, right? Just a little bit. But then I like what happens when we see verses 11 and 12. Darius makes a further decree, right? And this decree is great. The threat of life against anyone who tries to impede the work of the Jews in the temple. And it's really very similar to what we see Nebuchadnezzar say in Daniel chapters 2 and 3. I want you to take out the center beam of his house. Take out, take out that center rafter. Impale the head of the household on it. And then take all the dung from the community and pile it on the dude's house. You. Right? If you guys are going to be intimidating... I, Darius, can be more intimidating. We're not, this, is, this is not to stop. I'm taking this seriously. Now imagine being with Zerubbabel and Jeshua back in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 5, right? Verses 1 through 4. You've got these guys that, that they're intimidating them and they're, they're trying to bully them a little bit, trying to use some bureaucratic authority to do something. And now they get this letter from Darius. And you just want to <laughs> rub it in their face, Right? But, but I hope that if you had been with them during the intimidation and the opposition, that it would have stirred in your heart a moment to pray and a moment to be obedient to the word. Right? But sometimes that opposition instead stirs us to pessimism and discouragement. Right? Sometimes we can become so discouraged that we find ourselves feeling hopeless and in despair. But, but we need to know this, that, that God uses the difficulties in life for the betterment of his people. Right? God uses opposition to bless us and to draw us closer to him. God then brings about a success to those who are obedient to him for his glory. See, the people of God will, will prosper in the things of God when they are obedient to God. Well, let me say that again. The people of God will prosper in the things of God when they are obedient to God. This should encourage us to remain obedient and faithful even when hope seems lost. Because hope is never lost. Hope is always in God. Tatanar and Shethar, Boz and I, they follow King Darius' letter and they leave the Jews alone to finish the work on the temple. Verse 14, we see a connection again to, to the work of, of God's people and their obedience to the word, right? 
Verse 14 says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by a decree of God of Israel and by a decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. God accomplishes his decrees through the decrees of kings. Those royal proclamations, those laws of man, are what they are because God has purposed for them to be that way. They were all part of God's plan and God's design. Ezra mentions Artaxerxes in chapter 6, verse 14, and, and we don't really see Artaxerxes as a player in this story much until we get to chapter 7. He's mentioned a little bit in 4, but he becomes a major player in chapter 7. But again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is, is, is allowing Ezra to be able to make these connections from Zerubbabel and Jeshua's generation of the first returnees to his own time and his generation of returnees from the exile. God's hand is in all the work being done in Jerusalem. Whether it's the altar, whether it's the temple, whether it's the city or the walls, God is looking for his people to be obedient and faithful despite opposition and hardship. Now, I want you to be careful here because you can read this. And as I was reading this, a part of me was like, wait a second. Is God calling us to do a fake it till you make it attitude? Be careful there. I'm going to be obedient just because I know to be obedient. Not exactly what God's looking for here. This is about perseverance in our obedience. This is about persevering through hardship and seeing God's glory and plan revealed on the other side. This isn't about fake it till you make it. This is about knowing and having a faith that God is going to see me through this anyway. Right? This is not about being obedient. This is about being obedient not because God will bless the obedient, but being obedient because God has already blessed you and obedience shows that you're thankful. I think we need to see that in this. And in verse 17, it says they offered up all these things in the dedication, right? A hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for the, all of Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of tribes of Israel. I mentioned this to remind us that to kill and slaughter such valuable animals so abundantly, so profusely, shows that the elders of the Jews here really did believe that God would provide for them according to his word. They had faith in their obedience. They believed in his goodness. They believed in his holiness. And they believed in his faithfulness. But the other thing we see here is they offered up that sin offering. Right? They, they also had to see their own sinfulness against his holiness as well. And they desired to be pleasing before a holy and righteous God. Now, you and I, we no longer offer up animal sacrifices as part of worship. And I'm kind of glad of that. I get a little squeamish sometimes. Right? I'm not going to lie. We don't do this now because the work of Jesus Christ on the cross took care of that for us. His willing sacrifice makes a complete atonement for all sin. His death on the cross makes it possible for the sinful to come into the presence of the holy. Jesus is the great reconciler. When we repent 
believe in his word, and follow Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled unto God. And then we see in Ezra chapter 6 at the end of this, the people are celebrating the Passover. And the Passover, if we remember back, commemorates God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and giving them the promised land in Canaan. And Isaiah in chapter 66 gives this promise that the Passover will be celebrated by both Jews and Gentiles when God restores his people. You look at chapter 6, verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to the worship of the Lord God of Israel. There's a glimpse here of that. That, that there were people who had separated themselves out, worked and were obedient to seek holiness out. We see a glimpse of that and this hope that is to come, that God's people are going to anticipate that when we see the return of Christ, that, that all people from every tongue and every tribe will be celebrating that together. See, the people of God are, are unified people who seek holiness in our lives. Those who are outside of Israel participated in the Passover because they had pursued holiness and they were included with God's people in celebration here. And what do we see, though, over and over at the end here? That it's about joy. There's joy happening. The holiness gives us joy. The Lord has made them joyful. And there is hope for more of this joy from the Lord to come. And that joy and that hope comes from obedience. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for being an encourager of us to be obedient to your word, to show that we're thankful for how you've already blessed us through our obedience. Father, we see that our obedience to you is what allows us to prosper in the work you have given us. Father, I pray that as a, as a congregation, as a church, as a, as a body of believers, that we see that and that we act obediently to the task you have given us through your word so that we may honor and glorify you, that your honor and your glory may be shown and that your church, your temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit can be built as souls are added to the book of life. Father, encourage us to be obedient for those reasons for your sake.